Now through July 20th, join Planet Fitness for $1 down and feel spectacular with tons of equipment in the judgment-free zone. Join at planetfitness.com or in club. $1 down, $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Hurry. Deal ends July 20th. See club for details. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation with nationally known gerontologist Carol Zernio and veteran broadcaster and attorney Ron Aaron. This program provides health, wellness, and other information for caregivers who are vital to the health and well-being of so many people across our country. Now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Carol Zerniel, is on special assignment today. So it will be me and our guest who is joining us on the Caregiver SOS On Air hotline, direct from Portland, Oregon. Anita Honig is with us. Anita is someone who has spent a whole lot of time looking at questions of death and dying and how we in this country handle that. And the answer is not very well. She serves as an associate professor of anthropology at Brandeis University, teaches classes on medicine, religion, death, and dying, and explores the cultural dimensions of medicine with a particular focus on life's bookends, birth and death. And we're going to talk with her about her research, looking at uh, the medical aid in dying in the United States, assisted dying versus assisted living. And uh, Anita, it's a pleasure to have you join us. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Ron. As you take a look at how we in this country handle death, uh, the, the answer probably is not very well. I think that's a fair characterization, I would say. And that's just not just exclusive to the United States. I think that's the case in many uh, Western countries as well, is that we really try to push death to the fringes of our consciousness and to kind of the uh, margins of society, death has been outsourced. We no longer handle human remains. Um, we don't usually bring up death in everyday conversations. Um, there's a real sort of silence around the topic in this country. And um, also with that silence often comes some stigma around addressing death head on or having those open, more open conversations. Um, even and especially when people are nearing the end of their own life or uh, their families are. So, so how is it that uh, someone in, in your particular shoes uh, earned a BA in anthropology from Reed College, a master's and a PhD in anthropology from the University of Chicago? What got you interested in this topic? So up until I started research on this topic, I had actually been working on birth and birthing complications in Ethiopia. And when I originally um, stumbled across this particular topic, it was through a documentary called How to Die in Oregon, which is an amazing um, documentary on people in, in um, uh, basically on the front lines of assisted dying in Oregon, the first state ever that legalized assisted dying. And it followed a bunch of volunteers and doctors and patients, families, as they weighed whether or not to... Um, carry out an assisted death and the constraints of their choices and um, all of these attendant um, issues. And I was immediately hooked. I thought, wow, what an interesting social phenomenon. It brought up so many questions to me about um, life, uh, our existence, um, 
about transitioning uh, away from um, our lived experience to um, no longer being right, letting go all the, all of those things. And at the time I thought, oh, well, this will just be the opposite of birth and the opposite of what I've done so far. And it ended up being not the opposite, but very much alike birth in so many ways. How so? Birth and death are both sacred transitions. They both are um, basically what we call, um, what's a good term for that? They're basically um, states, uh, uh, shifting states of uh, being, of going from non-being to being or from being to non-being, essentially. And as such so first you're there and are? And exactly. They're, 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 they're often accompanied by ritual. There's often a great sense of um, there's something sacred is happening or something really um, monumental is happening as people are welcomed into this world and are leaving this world. And of course, there's a lot of joy usually that accompanies the first one. And there's a lot of fear that accompanies our exit from this world. And so I was interested where that fear is coming from and um, and why why we don't pay more attention to making those transitions easier for for people like we have tried to make birth easier through doulas and birth attendants and of course now this is all starting to happen in this country we now have death doulas and i'm sure you've had some on the program or will in the future um but we have medicalized death in a similar way that we've medicalized birth but the consequences of that have actually been quite dire because right now the figures are 60 percent of americans die in hospitals and 20% in nursing homes. And, um, and often they, there's very little control at the end for most of these people, especially if you are in a hospital and a lot of decisions get made for you. It's interesting. I want to talk more about that. But first, for folks who may have just joined us, let me tell you, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Carol Zerniel, on special assignment today. And I have the pleasure of talking with Anita Honig. Uh, she is a uh, professor and author, uh, takes a look at the end of life, spent a lot of time looking at the beginning of life as well as a PhD in anthropology. And, uh, you know, it's interesting in my undergraduate career, uh, Dr. Honig, I had an interest in anthropology. I find it fascinating. I wasn't that excited about going on digs and crawling through dirt. Uh, so it wasn't something that I wanted to do uh, in, in that kind of anthropology. But what you're describing uh, really takes a look in a sociological way at, at who we are as a human being. Yeah, so the kind of anthropology I do is um, known as cultural anthropology. And that basically doesn't, it's very different from archaeology in that it just really takes a look at the way humans consider, have different systems of value and meaning around things that we take for granted, right? Ideas around embodiment, around um bodily autonomy around medicine, religion, death, all of those things. And there are some human universals, especially when it comes to death, but there are a lot of things that people do differently. And anthropology basically studies that kind of human difference in the here and now. So not just in prehistoric times and, and asks, what can we learn from seeing how people do it differently in other parts of the globe, essentially. And you mentioned a, a profession that uh, most of our listeners may not be familiar with death doulas. Uh, is that like an extension of hospice? Um, it can be. Sometimes death doulas uh, work alongside hospice uh, providers, but so far they, they haven't been all that integrated. Death doulas are essentially um, 
people that you hire usually um, who come out and help you in making that big transition from um, as, as you're kind of exiting this world. And that can uh, range from giving practical support with getting your affairs in order and things like that. But it also just means bearing witness to your dying process and um, ushering you over that threshold, essentially. And one of the descriptions of what is legal in Oregon is assisted suicide. Uh, death by dying and with assistance uh, is something that uh, is certainly considered by many, uh, but not legal in every state in this country as yet. That's right. And I would actually, um, I, I um, calling it assisted suicide is a little misleading because assisted assisting somebody in a suicide is actually illegal across the country. But assisted dying is specifically what we mean when we talk about medical aid and dying, these um, assisted dying laws that we have in Oregon. And the laws basically say, for legal purposes, and otherwise, it's not considered suicide or homicide, because otherwise you could say, oh, well, doctors are helping commit suicide, and that's just not the case, because what we're talking about is a medical procedure that is that people can legally seek out. And you're totally right. It's uh, legal in Oregon, and then it's legal in um, – I have to count. Can I count yeah. them out? So it's Washington. Of course. Um, so it's Washington, Oregon, California, Hawaii, Colorado, New Mexico, Maine, New Jersey – Washington, D.C., Vermont, and um, Montana. But Montana is kind of an outlier because assisted dying never went through um, a legislative process, but there was a court decision that basically said it's not illegal um, for physicians to help terminally ill patients and their lives. You know, we know anecdotally that in, in some nursing homes, uh, physicians uh, may prescribe an extra dose of morphine to a speed, what is going to happen anyhow? Yes. You're shaking your head yes, right? Yes. <laughs> so the and, question and, is, so sorry, go ahead. Well, my, my question is, uh, so this is not really new uh, across this country. It just isn't openly recognized or discussed. That's correct. So we in right now we have a practice on hospice, even on Catholic hospices called, a lot of people are not very familiar with it. It's called palliative sedation. And that essentially Say that again. It's called palliative sedation. Palliative sedation. Sedation, yeah. And what that right. means is that with the consent of the patient and their family, a hospice doctor can actually administer um, a dose of medications that puts you into a coma. And the idea behind that is it's reserved for patients who have unremitting pain and symptoms, whose uh, symptoms can't be controlled other than putting them completely under. And um, usually what ends up happening is that the patient uh, dies because you withdraw nutrition and hydration at the same time. The Supreme Court um, actually has been supportive of uh, palliative sedation and is not calling that um, euthanasia, which is what it would be because it's um, a physician. If a physician administers this kind of medication, some people argue it could be considered euthanasia, which is, right. um, but basically because they say the idea is to control patient's pain and not to end their life. But the effect is almost always that the patient dies. So um, th there hasn't been very much public scrutiny about on this practice um, as there has been with assisted dying, which basically 
brings it out more to the forefront. It's more of a legal process that you go through. There's several steps involved. And I discuss all of that in the, my new book, The Day I Die, The Untold Story of a Sister Dying in America. I want to talk more about this in just a couple of moments. I want you to stick with us. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. This is a fascinating topic. And I think we can all agree we're all going to die sometime. The question is, how do we want that to happen? What control do we want over that happening? And where's the law and where are the states going? And what about the federal government and the U.S. Supreme Court? All of those very difficult and complex questions. And it is a pleasure to talk with someone who knows a whole lot about it, Dr. Anita Honig. And she is with us. Stay with us right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. The WellMed Charitable Foundation would like to remind you it is important to stay connected while social distancing. Caregiver stress may be higher now, and specialists are available to talk with. There's no question that we are living in not normal times, but whether the new normal will be the old normal is yet to be seen. So if you are troubled, if you are feeling stressed, ask for help. Services are provided at no cost. See more at caregiversos.org. Hello. Well, we are so pleased you are sticking with us right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host who is on special assignment today, Carol Zerniel. And so we are flying along with Dr. Anita Honig. Uh, she is on leave as a professor at Brandeis University, a distinguished university on the East Coast. She's hanging out at the moment in Portland, and uh, we're delighted to have her with us, talking about something we don't talk about enough in this country, assisted dying and her book, which deals with this issue, The Day I Die, The Untold Story of Assisted Dying in America. And, and Professor, we were talking earlier, I mentioned uh, that I, I know of a case, a friend of mine's mother in a nursing home, no hope of recovery, and the doctor administered a, a, an extra dose of morphine, if you will, that resulted in her passing. Not uncommon, you were telling me off the air. Yeah, it's not uncommon. And I, before we went on break, I talked about palliative sedation. But even before that, um, there's often kind of an unspoken understanding sometimes that can evolve between a patient and a caregiver um, that involves exactly the kind of case that you just mentioned of administering a little morphine or letting the family even administer a little more morphine. And that little bit sometimes puts a patient, um, quote unquote, over the edge. And that happens more often than people realize cardiac arrest will be a result. And then with a DNR, they don't resuscitate. That's right. But they do not resuscitate. So these issues are are, are complex. Uh, But, you know, in in this country, and I don't know about other countries, we don't talk about them enough. Uh, My mother used to joke, she's now passed away along with my dad, uh, that, hey, you know, in the end, just put a bullet in my brain, take me out. We don't do that in this country. (laughs) No, but unfortunately, in, in a lot of states, I mean, the majority of states, uh, like Texas, um, people people don't have a ton of choices at the end of their life if um, hospice or palliative care comes up short for them, which, of course, is always an option for people. And one thing that really surprised me in my research, and I talk about this in my book, is that um, about 90% of people who use assisted dying are already enrolled, enrolled in hospice. So that means it's not an either or or decision, but it's um, assisted dying kind of becomes complementary to hospice when they think, well, hospice can't actually take me all the way or hospice doesn't answer 
some of the um, desire that I have to actually control the way that I die. Um, because in many of those cases, terminal illness has really taken away um, any semblance of control that these patients feel. If you talk to people and you do all the time, uh, do they want to control how and when they die? Do people say, you know, I wish I could handle this? I think that's part of it. Um, part of it is that they have been so disempowered by their illness um, that, they, that they just want some sort of certainty that, well, if things get really bad, then at, at least I have an ace up my sleeve. The really surprising thing, Ron, that I found during my research is that about a third of all patients never end up using the medication, even after they qualified. And part of, sometimes they simply run out of time, right? They're so sick. You have to be within six months of the end of your life. They're so sick that they don't make it through the mandated 15-day waiting period um, that we have in most states. Um, but sometimes they change their mind and they actually end up having a quote-unquote natural death. And I say quote-unquote because um, it's hard to call any death natural these days because we're still so medicated in many ways, right? But they end up having what's close to a natural death because they just want to live until they um, until their very last moment. But they want the medication just in case things go so terribly south that they just want to be released from their suffering. And that's why people... Um, usually try to qualify for the law is because they don't recognize themselves anymore and who they've become in some ways. And they would rather go out with some semblance of what they consider as dignity. I know that if God forbid I developed ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, that's an example of how uh, I know from my standpoint, were that to happen, I don't want to linger on with just my brain working, but nothing else. ALS is a really complicated case. Um, Terrible disease. Yeah, so horrific because the mind stays active while the body essentially um, shuts down, right? Kind of right. one by one, all the muscle groups. I talk about um, a particularly heartbreaking ALS case in my book um, who was facing some difficulties with um, the, some of the loss requirements that insist on patients actually self-administering the lethal medication. So you have to be able to either drink the medication or press a plunger on your feeding tube if you have a feeding tube or a rectal catheter. But a lot of ALS patients, as you know, have lost use of their hands by the time they qualify for an assisted death. And so they can't a, swallow on their own. And they often can't swallow on their own. So there have been cases of ALS patients actually shut out from using the law, even though the law was written with um, terminally ill patients in mind, but ALS patients sometimes, sometimes, not always, um, are frankly too sick to use the law. That's tragic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you look at the population of people in this country, we're an aging society. Uh, more and more people, 10,000 turn 65 every day in this country, and uh, we're living longer. My mother used to say uh, she was 90 at the time she passed away, and I, I remember saying, so, Mama, how you doing? And she would say, you know, Ronnie, everything hurts. Her mind was perfect. She just didn't feel right, didn't feel well. And ultimately, she passed away in her sleep, uh, which was a blessing. It, it got rid of all that pain for her. Uh, if she had had a choice, uh, and the law was in effect back then in Ohio, where she was living, I believe she would have chosen uh, to have uh, death with assistance. Yeah, and I think that's pretty pretty common, right? That people have some sort of many people have a line in the sand of where they say, well, if if I can no longer leave my bed or if I 
I'm so incapacitated in all these other ways, then, um, then I, I don't see a reason, a purposeful reason to be here. And in um, hospice circles, that's often referred to as existential suffering. So even, even if your pain is controlled through hospice, even if you're uh, physically um, kind of hanging on, there is this existential idea that you're, you don't, you're not sure why you're still sticking around and for what and for whom. And, and often, you know, patients try to hang on for their family or to make it to the next graduation of somebody or something like that. But at the end of the day, they're so ready to go. And and the thing about assisted dying loss is um, people often don't you know, think that, oh, well, this is being forced on other people. And that's, um, I would say the very opposite is true. There's so much assisted dying. Um, the assisted dying pathway is not the path of least resistance. It's very difficult to qualify for these laws. And if you don't think you want that, you don't have to pursue that. But it's an option for folks who have reached that um, you know, that proverbial, um, what is it? The, um, spot between, a uh, what is it? The hard and a uh, rock, and a, rock place. and a hard yeah. place. There you are. So, so tell me, uh, from, from your standpoint, as someone who's really studied this, uh, I'm often troubled by why does the state have an interest in this at all? What business is it of the state to say you have to stay alive? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I, um, and I think, Something that um, many people don't realize is that, in, okay, maybe I'll back up for a second. So we just had the Roe decision come down and Roe basically has now been revoked. And, um, and, the, and, and basically the decision was there's no constitutional right to an abortion. That decision was already made in assisted dying in 1997, where the Supreme Court said there is no constitutional right to an assisted death, but states should um, make their own laws about this issue. So that's why we have different states having totally different, um, or actually somewhat similar, but policies around assisted dying where it's legal in 11, um, but illegal in the rest of all states. And um, so you have, you, you have different legal landscapes, but with the exception of Oregon that has now just a, a month or two ago, basically opened assisted dying up to non-residents and all other states, you have to be a resident to make use of the law. Oregon has now opened it up to people from outside of state, which um, um, is potentially good news for someone from Texas who is um, in dire straits. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, the government is involved in a lot of uh, things related to our bodies, as we know, and, um, and that doesn't stop at death. That's interesting. In Oregon, they could be creating a death industry. Kind of. That's what uh, critics fear. But the reality is that it takes a lot of resources to uproot your entire life when you are so sick and move to a different state Correct. to die. And I mean, I, I don't really foresee that happening because people when they are um, nearing the end of their life do not want to leave their homes and often physically can't and transplant their entire family to die in a different state. It's interesting because you mentioned Roe and the Supreme Court 6-3 decision overturning a 50-year precedent in, in Roe v. Wade uh, for people who seek control of their bodies in states where uh, terminating a pregnancy is illegal, they're forced to travel. Yes. Yeah, it's, um, it's uh, there's so many parallels here. And um, but Oregon is the only state that has least recently lifted its residency requirement. So in all other states, you still have to be a resident. 
As you take a look at other countries, and we've got about two minutes left, uh, when you look at uh, Japan, for example, and uh, some of the uh, uh, countries like uh, Norway and Sweden, uh, are, are there different ways that death is handled? So I'm less familiar with uh, the Scandinavian countries. There are certainly a lot of rituals that surround death and dying in Japan specifically. There is, um, there's also a, um, a very active remembrance of ancestors who become part of the families once, once they, once, um, once they die, the ancestors are uh, venerated in a pretty different way. And sometimes there's even a place setting for them at the table. And, um, and there, there's, it's more fluid. There is less of a hard break between the living and the dying often in, in parts of Japan. Um, as far as assisted dying goes, though, um, it is legal in um, Australia, New Zealand, uh, the Benelux countries, Switzerland, um, and Colombia, the country really? of Colombia. Interesting. And Canada, Canada. I shouldn't, uh, sorry, forgot Canada. Now, for folks who want to get a hold of your book and, and learn more about your work, how, how do they do that? Yeah, so you can head over to my website, anitahanek.com, or find The Day I Die, The Untold Story of Assisted Dying in America in any bookstore of your choice, online, everywhere. It's also available as an audiobook, um, cool. if that's people's preference. Anita Hanek, H-A-N-N-I-G. That's right. Anita, thanks so much for talking with us and uh, appreciate the work you're doing. Thanks so much, Ron. This was great. You take care. You too. On behalf of Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. Thanks for joining us today on Caregiver SOS On Air. Executive producers for Caregiver SOS On Air are Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron. Our associate producer is Christy Romero. I'm Ron Aaron. We'll see you next week on Caregiver SOS On Air. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, an exclusive presentation of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. We welcome emails with suggestions and comments on this program at radio at wellmed.net. Join co-hosts Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron next week for more on caregiving, improving the health and well-being of caregivers and their care recipients everywhere. For more on caregiving and podcasts of our programs, visit caregiversos.org.